Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. I know, I changed the intro. You know, this was my original tagline, and at the heart of all of this stuff is presence. So I wanted to reflect that when I talked about taking care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. And that remains the same. But lately I've been feeling like that's maybe a layer deeper. We want to work our way there. You already have the motivation to be a more present, tuned-in parent. And a lot of what I'm trying to do here is to get rid of frictions that are in the way of that. Often these frictions can be uncertainty or stress. And stress in particular can be mental, it can be physical, it can be metaphysical. (laughs) What am I doing here? How do I live with meaning? And I think one of the biggest frictions of all is an incomplete understanding of motivation, how it works for us, how it works for our kids. And I have based a lot of my career on trying to understand motivation as it relates to health behaviors, making this stuff happen because it's important, but it is also an integral part of parenting. So I wanted to speak to someone who really understood the research on intrinsic motivation. And we'll get into what that means exactly in just a moment. My guest today is Dr. Alfie Cohn. He is a speaker and the author of 14 books, including The Myth of the Spoiled Child, Punished by Rewards, and Schooling Beyond Measure. He is a personality for sure, and he advocates strongly for a specific approach to communicating with and collaborating with kids. You don't have to onboard all of it. I think it's a lot, but I do know that you will be a better parent for having learned more about his viewpoint and at least having considered it. We kick off this interview with a discussion of what he cares about when it comes to motivation. I don't care how motivated your kids are. I care about how your kids are motivated. What what we know now is that there are different kinds of motivation and that the kind matters more than the amount. Psychologists uh, distinguish in particular between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. I am going to unpack extrinsic and intrinsic motivation really quickly. The odds are that you've heard these terms, but really what do they mean? Intrinsic motivation is something that you do because it seems important. It satisfies a deep need or creates joy. Extrinsic motivation is when we do something not for its own sake, but for something outside of that task, either to receive a reward or to avoid a punishment. The research shows that you are most likely to achieve high success and satisfaction by spending more time doing things that you are intrinsically motivated to do. A much simpler way to say it is that it is more enjoyable to do things that are more enjoyable. There is more to this, of course, and to sum up a large chunk of the research Dr. Cohn is citing, the more that you reward people, the more they lose interest in the thing they had to do to get the reward in the first place. Imagine a kid who loves to run. You have a future track star on your hands, you think, so you want her to get great at running. Right now, she will sprint around the track at the playground or nearby school just for fun. No prompting or cajoling needed. but. What happens if one day, out of the blue, you tell her that you'll buy her her favorite treat every time she does 10 laps? 
the focus shifts from the enjoyment of running to the enjoyment of the reward. It's not binary. It is a continuum. But on that continuum, running shifts a little bit closer to just being a means to an end. So if you think there is substance to this argument, the question becomes, well, what do we do with that knowledge? Here's what Alfie Cohn says. So our job as parents, and also, by the way, the job of teachers and managers, is to, first of all, stop doing what gets in the way of intrinsic motivation. Stop doing things to people and instead shift to working with people. And then more affirmatively, to provide kids, if we're talking about parents, with what they need in order to experience intrinsic satisfaction um, and become increasingly proficient at what they do. This is a very appealing idea to me as a parent that we're still going to go after the same goals. We're still going to hold our kids to what they're capable of as humans, but we're going to prioritize options that are the most enjoyable to them. And, you know, as somebody who's done a fair bit of research on the topic of mastery, I can tell you that the biggest correlate to performance is practice. And the biggest correlate to practice is having a good time at practice. And that's not to say that practicing a sonata on the cello or trying to perfect a specific type of jump is always going to be Mr. Toad's wild ride. It's just that there is more enjoyment factory installed for our kids. I like it and I'm, I want to be in, but again, a practical question. How do we get there? I asked Alfie Cohn about the barriers for teachers and educators. If you haven't thought about the harm that extrinsic motivation can do, uh, you, you might be surprised or a little unsettled to learn that traditional approaches, what I call doing to approaches, which are variations of bribes and threats and coercion, um, get in the way of the things that we want in the long term. Uh, another barrier, I think, is too much focused focus on the short term, getting compliance. The vast majority of parenting resources uh, assume that whatever the parent wants is legitimate, and the only question is what trick or technique we can offer to help parents make their kids do those things and jump through those hoops. Whereas I start my book, a book I wrote after Punished by Rewards um, called Unconditional Parenting. I start by asking, you know, what are, what are your long-term goals for, for your child or for your children? And by the way, I've begun almost all of the presentations I've done for parents and for teachers by asking that deceptively simple question. And I get very much the same answers wherever I go. We want kids who are happy, ethical, independent, compassionate, curious, and so on. And then what I do for a living is I say to people, you say you want this, but why are you doing that? Because here's the research showing that that, things like re rewards and praise and consequences of various kinds, actively impede the realization of the very long-term goals you just indicated were most important to you. And this is where Alfie Cohn will get a little hardline on people and say you have to make a choice. Do you want to keep doing the same thing you've been doing, which is 
rewarding kids with praise or other incentives and then punishing them when they displease us or to be more collaborative and more respectful of their worldview and see them maybe as more intelligent and capable of self-determination than we're used to. But all of this is is unsettling because there's so much pressure in our culture to focus on compliance, to use methods of control, even if it's sugar-coated control like rewards, and for us to feel like we have the power in the relationship. I definitely grew up in a family and in an educational environment that had top-down transfer of power. It was hierarchical, at least until I went to a hippie high school, but that's another story. And we often accept our experiences and pass them along because we haven't asked what really needs to be there. The little print says that which is essential is invisible to the eye. So if this seems radical to you, we don't have to tear down our institutions. We just have to ask more questions. And on the subject of giving kids more autonomy, I know what the argument to this is. It's that our kids don't know what they don't know, and they're not always capable of making good decisions or understanding the future. But when do we start training them? to make good decisions and understand the future. So I wonder if our role as parents is to go out and let our kids make a lot of mistakes, run a lot of experiments, and just make sure that none of their mistakes are catastrophic. This viewpoint is definitely more toward the free range end of the parenting spectrum as opposed to snowplow parenting on the other side. But I think that we can put some boundaries on that range. We can keep our kids safe from injury and trauma and regret, or at least as much as we practically can. We can help them think things through, but we can also probably be more curious about why they like what they like and where we can support them, where they want our support. You know, there's good research to show that kids learn how to make decisions by making decisions. But unfortunately, there's a huge amount of pressure, some of coming from parent books, articles, podcasts, and so on, some of it from our pediatricians and mothers-in-law and that are all about bringing kids to heal, getting them to do what we unilaterally decide is best. You know, I originally recorded this interview a while ago, and I've been thinking about it a lot, especially when I am parenting. And I have to admit, I use rewards in particular a lot and you know even though I'm conscious of it it's a tough one if I were to ask my son right now would you want to watch shows and play video games 24 7 he'd say yeah and I mostly believe him he would get bored from time to time but he would still consume way more than I am comfortable with as a parent so just as a thought experiment if you're going to do this if you're going to go whole hog and get rid of rewards and punishments in the way that you parent your child. How the hell would you do that? You can share your thoughts with me by going to dadstrength.com slash feedback. And as you think about this experiment, I also encourage you to think about what control really looks like. Here's what Alfie Cohen says. 
if I say to you, do this, or here's what I'm going to do to you, it's obvious I'm trying to control you. Mm -hmm. But if I say, do this and you'll get that, it's not always obvious, though it should be, that that too is what two researchers called control through seduction. Um, it makes us feel better about it, and we can be in denial about the fact that it's still basically a control approach um, to basically bribe people in, into doing what it is we want. And that's hard for us to to assimilate, to digest, because so many people have thought of it as a dichotomous choice. You can either use sticks or you can use carrots. You can threaten or you can bribe. And the reality is, those are both those are two sides of the same coin and and that coin doesn't buy very much the one thing you can get with a harsh enough punishment or a juicy enough reward is temporary compliance but that always comes at an enormous cost because um it fails to look in the long run, it only f focuses on now, and more importantly, I mean you can imagine that as a horizontal shift between looking at now and then looking into the future. But there's also kind of a vertical distinction here, which is all rewards and punishments are basically on the surface. They're only looking at behavior, the action you can see and measure. And what matters most with kids and with ourselves is the um, what's underneath the behavior, the needs, the motives, the values that underlie and inform what it is we do. We need to be interested in and focused on the child who experiences the world and engages in the behavior. All variations of traditional parenting, based as they are on, on rewards and punishments, are focused just on extinguishing or reinforcing those behaviors on the surface, thereby doing a disservice to the child and thereby not getting to the heart of the problem, which is the stuff underneath the act. In fact, my rule of thumb about parenting resources is their value is inversely proportional to the number of times the word behavior appears. At this point, I bring up an example from one of Alfie Cohen's books, where he talks about a kid getting off a flight and where everyone's comment from the flight is how well behaved this kid was. And I was thinking of it in the context of how we evaluate behavior. But Alfie Cohn clarified where he was going with this one. That example wasn't meant to illustrate so much the, um, uh, the superficiality of a behavioral focus so much as the phrase well-behaved and how that indicates that what we often value most in kids, especially other people's kids, isn't how curious or creative, you know, or empathic they are, but merely the extent to which they are obedient. Um, and when people write me, care of my website, and ask for advice, what do I do about my kid who dot, 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 I have to say, I'm sorry, I've never met your, your kid or you. <laughs> I don't know the situation, your relationship, the background here. You know, it would be presumptuous to offer advice for a specific situation. All I can do is offer a broad set of guidelines and principles that inform what we do and that you have to then adapt and adopt them as you choose. And so some of those basic guidelines and principles include some of the things I've already sort of rattled off, 
focusing more on our long-term goals than just on short-term compliance, focusing on needs and values um, and not just behavior, um, doing a lot more asking than telling, um, giving kids as much say as possible about what's going on. And I've, I've done this in a different order because the one I start with in the book is when your kid doesn't do what you told them, consider the possibility that the problem is not with your kid, but with what you've told him. Be willing to reconsider the request. So, for example, a parent may say, if I can't use punishments and rewards, how do I get my kid to clean up his, his room that's a pigsty? And my response is not to offer a slightly nicer strategy for making him do it. It's to ask, why does his room the only place on the planet that belongs to him have to be kept to your standards. So always begin by questioning the request rather than assuming whatever I want goes, you know. So when people say, you know, your your talk about working with instead of doing two and giving kids more say, moving beyond punishments and rewards, that sounds nice in theory. But in practice, how do you First of all, I find the people who say that almost never really like the theory. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, and secondly, there is nothing as practical as a good theory. So if I talk about supporting kids' autonomy um, and, and imagining the world from their point of view, which is one of the most powerful suggestions I think anyone's ever offered, it's been empirically shown to correlate with higher quality parenting to do that kind of what psychologists call perspective taking. When you do that, then you kind of figure it out, you know, along with your co-parent, if you're lucky enough to have one, what to do and what not to do in any given situation. And there's no right answer at the end of the textbook. You know, we are all on a journey struggling how to do this. And, um, trying to figure out how to do it better and with more patience. But at least we know from the beginning the kinds of considerations that, uh, that tend to promote or get in the way of helping kids to become good people. It really is challenging to relinquish this idea of control. So I think even for folks like myself and, and maybe you who are on board with this stuff in principle, the real discipline is sort of weaning ourselves off of this idea of control. And I think this is done through many small steps. I don't think it's, um, you know, where we wake up one day and have a radical departure from our parenting style, but who knows? Um, one thing that I do know and think about a lot is how... A lot of parents will say, well, look, the world is tough. Life is harsh and we need to prepare you for that. I'm not doing my job as a parent if I am not preparing you for the real world. I asked Alfie Cohn about this. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, I have a, um, I've, I've reduced that to a silly sounding acronym, which is BAGUTI, which stands for better get used to it. Later, people are going to do unhelpful painful, unpleasant things to you. So in order to prepare you for that, we better start doing unhelpful, painful, um, pointless things to you now. Um, <laughs> well, when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, but when I say it like that, I'm really just reflecting back 
you know, more sharply the mm-hmm. ludicrousness of that assumption. And a lot of people come astonishingly close to saying stuff that sounds like that without any irony intended. You know, kids do not become better at coping with an unpleasant world by having had an unpleasant childhood. You know, and the idea that, and I talk a lot about this in my other education work, about the stupidity of Bagooty in classrooms. You know, for example, no research has ever found any benefit to any kind of homework before kids are in high school. And even once they're in high school, newer research shows it's not really necessary or valuable. I want to know what you think of this. Again, I've got a feedback form, dadstrength.com slash feedback. Very curious to hear your take on homework. Uh, I, you know, my son is six, so it's not something we've really had to deal with. But I kind of feel like a lot of busy work gets thrown at kids. And I do wonder what we are saying no to in order to say yes to homework. So it's not to say that well done it can't have value. And we we do want our kids to have the skills of preparation and study and discipline. But what else could we be doing with that time? And by the way, if you found the idea of getting rid of homework challenging, well, buckle up for this one. Um, Similarly, research overwhelmingly finds that when kids are given grades, letter or number grades, It makes them shallower thinkers who prefer easier tasks and are less interested in learning. And yet when you show this evidence about things like homework and grades to teachers and parents, their response is, well, they're going to get homework and grades later. So we, and then the implication is we better start destroying their interest in learning right now to get them ready, you know, and whether we're talking about education or parenting, you know, this makes about as much sense as saying, You know, there are a lot of carcinogens in the environment that kids are going to be exposed to their whole lives. So we better start feeding them as many cancer-causing agents as possible while they're small. Build up that tolerance. Yeah, Yeah. which doesn't work. (laughs) All it does is compound the problem and start, start the disease sooner. And that's true with respect to all of this. What helps kids cope with difficult people and dysfunctional institutions is not any kind of denial of what they want or constraints on their ability to make choices, um, but rather uh, a support where we're meeting their needs so that they're in a better position later to be able to, having had their needs met, having had their psychological capacities nourished, to be able to cope with bad stuff. You know, and, you know, one of the things I I realized in my earlier work in Punished by Rewards, I talked about one of the things that's wrong with rewards and punishments is that as extrinsic motivators, they undermine intrinsic motivation. But later, when I wrote the unconditional parenting, I realized there's something there's there's another layer of harm. There's another whole problem to it. And that is that rewards like, say, praise, for example, which is just a verbal doggy biscuit when kids please us, um, sends a message of conditional acceptance. What kids hear is that I am loved and by extension lovable 
only when I please my parents, only when I'm well-behaved or impressive, when I get good grades, do well in sports, when I don't make a fuss when their friends are over, when I don't share anger or sadness, when I feel when whatever. It doesn't matter what strings are attached. The point is that kids don't flourish when there are any strings attached to our acceptance. What helps them develop well is to know that they're loved for who they are, not for what they do. And unfortunately, the vast majority of parenting advice that we hear is to offer conditional affection and to withdraw our attention, our approval, our acknowledgement when kids don't do what we want. So what what really helps them, what they need, um, to circle back to your question, to cope with difficulty is is not, you know, what what is euphemistically called tough love or uh, getting them habituated to the bad stuff that happens in, in many environments and in our society, it's exactly the opposite. It is not only support from us, but unconditional love. So here's a challenge for you. I want you to think about all the times that you tell your kid that you love them, that you're proud of them. And I want you to hold that up against the timeline of when you are happy with how they are behaving or when you are displeased when you're upset with how they're behaving. And I want to ask you whether that distribution is even or if it skews in a certain direction. Parents will say, of course, I love my child no matter what. But that's not the way they feel if you have ever, for example, forcibly isolated a child when she needs you most. We euphemistically call forcible isolation time out. But the main message it it communicates to children is I am figuratively, emotionally, and literally cast out when I don't please my parent. And I must obey uncritically, mindlessly, do whatever is demanded of me in order to get back into the room, into my parents' good graces. So you don't have to say to your child, I don't love you when you do X. All you have to do is do timeouts when they displease you or praise them when they do please you. And the message is you are accepted only conditionally. That's, that's, so there's a, like a different, deeper level to what I'm calling a move from doing to to working with. It's not just that rewards kill intrinsic motivation. It's that rewards and punishments communicate the opposite of what kids need to flourish, which is this sense that I, if I did something that's a problem, we'll work it out, but my parents' love is never in doubt. I want to concede here that maybe it is possible to do timeouts that don't feel punitive. So it's one thing to say, hey, uh, you can't have any attention or affection until you learn to behave. But it's another thing to say, hey, I think you might need some quiet time to calm down. So maybe it's not so much the act itself, but how we frame it. And, you know, like in all things in life, context is everything. We pivoted a little bit here and got onto the subject of verbal recognition in the form of praise. And I wanted to know how Alfie Cohn felt about that. Well, actually, I call into question the whole idea of praise. Um, what Praise is not about encouragement, and it isn't feedback. 
It's a judgment. Praise is a verbal reward. Um, it offers a, a kind of patronizing pat on the head um, when kids do what pleases us or when students do what teacher pleases teachers or when employees do when what they do pleases managers. You see the, the common thread here? The, I've been studying this for decades, and the one thing I have become much more and more sure of is that rewards, including praise, are basically about power. It's for people with more power to control what people with less power do. And so um, even for people who don't want to read one of my books, I, I wrote an article just on this topic called Five Reasons to Stop Saying Good Job. You can Google it or it's on my I'll, website. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. And basically what I suggest is that instead of judging kids, you know, the fact that it's a positive judgment is not really what's what's most salient, uh, what has the greatest impact. It's just that it's a judgment. You know? So um, the alternative is not to do it slightly differently, to praise this instead of that or to do it uh, only under these circumstances or to do it a little less. I'm arguing that we really rethink the respects in which praise per se, A, is an extrinsic incentive, which undermines intrinsic motivation and a sense of autonomy, and B, that, um, that praise, like other rewards, is a perfect example of conditional acceptance. And so what can we do instead? We can, first of all, shut up and just watch, <laughs> you know, this need we feel to insert a judgment. You have pleased me. You have met my standards. You know, that's when, whenever we feel that strong compulsion to do things, that's a good sign that it's time to rethink what it is we're doing. Because we praise kids more because we have to say it than because they need to hear it. Um, second, you can simply describe what your child has done to show you've noticed. Can I tell you kind of a sweet story from my dad life? This would have been when my son was maybe two and a half or three. And I remember it was a period where, you know, for whatever reason, I wasn't that tuned in and I wasn't super present. Uh, but one evening I decided, you know, we should take a little walk around the block. And we did that. And I think my attention was in and out, but we rounded a corner and there was a little sign on somebody's lawn just a strip of fabric held up by two sticks, but one of those sticks had fallen by the side and the sign was down. And my son went up and just kind of adjusted it. It just seemed right to him. I didn't say anything. We just continued our walk and went home. But when we got back, my wife asked how the walk had gone. And I said, you know, he saw this sign was askew and he went up and wanted to be helpful and fixed it all by himself. And I watched his little chest swell up with pride. It was almost like a cartoon. It was the sweetest thing. And I think the magic of it was that I just recognized something that was inherent in him, a real sort of motivation and desire to help. So it wasn't about incentivizing it. It was just about recognition. And, and to me, that was really powerful. But of course, there are ways to do this. But when you judge them, 
oh, you're such a good artist, or boy, you're so generous, good for you. That pulls kids out of the act and makes them less interested in drawing or helping and sharing and more interested in what the hell do I have to do to get that reaction from mom or dad again? Uh, Now he's got me rethinking that story. I mean, I think I did the right thing, but I guess you always have to question this stuff but not just of ourselves, of our kids too. And one of the things Alfie Cohn really advocates for is curiosity and questions. And they have to be the kind of questions where you're not just fishing for the right answer. You really don't know what they're going to say. And that creates a kind of encouragement and support and respect and vote of confidence in kids Mm -hmm. that helps them construct a sense of themselves as the kind of person who gets the kick out of, you know, to take these examples, drawing or being, being helpful to other people. You know, research finds that parents who praise kids tend to have kids who are less concerned about the impact of their action on others, more self-centered. Punishing kids for being hurtful to others doesn't teach them to be nicer. It teaches them not to hurt them when you will catch them mm-hmm. um, because the message here is that the reason not to hurt others isn't because of how it makes them feel. It's because of what happens to me. All rewards <laughs> and punishments, no matter how they're done, share the characteristic of making kids more egocentric, more focused on what reward do I get or punishment do I avoid if I obey what a powerful person tells me to do. All variations of punishments and rewards, including praise, undermine the very other focus, generosity, compassion, caring that we want um, to promote. So at this point, I'm not sure how all of this is landing for you, if you agree with it, if you disagree. But as someone with a particular interest in intrinsic motivation, what I can say is that when something occurs spontaneously, when a behavior that you value as a parent emerges organically, we want to be observant in those moments. What conditions led to this? What might make that happen again? But we really have to be careful about trying to orchestrate control. And as I spoke to Alfie Cohn, I began to think of our systems of incentives, rewards, as an economy. And the thing about an economy is that it tells us what is valuable. And by telling us what is valuable, it also lets us know what is not, what is not worth tracking. You know, the expression is what gets measured gets managed. But when we're thinking about internal states for our kids and the deep feelings of emotion and motivation behind them, I think it's a lot more nuanced. And so if a kid shifts to just trying to get the reward and, you know, leaves aside all the important and valuable sort of internal stuff. The sad irony is when kids get it, they figure it out, the transactional, and then they want more and more rewards to do X, or they ask, what do you give me if I clear the table, we blame them, you know, for for being selfish or spoiled or, or whatever, when they're acting rationally. The problem was with what we did to 
elicit that reaction. And having turned uh, a family into an economic transaction, to make it economic in the first place is the problem. There's a phenomenon that I've seen in parenting circles, and it is this hardline opposition to participant trophies. And I've heard some really outspoken parents rail against this. I tend to think of them as skewing a certain way politically, and it turns out I'm not the only one. I read another another whole book called The Myth of the Spoiled Child that has chapters on the, the right-wing sort of cramped uh, view of life that, that says kids should never get a, 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 a trophy unless they've earned it by defeating other people, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I don't want trophies at all, but the worst kind are the kind you get only when you beat people, the kind that are just trinkets that say, thanks for trying. That's the kind that makes right-wing people become apoplectic, and that's the kind I think are innocuous or at least less destructive. So there we have it. I hope, like me, you found this interview challenging, that you are now thinking about, okay, what's going on when we try to motivate our kids or create motivation, and where could we be more collaborative or more aware of existing motivations and just help cultivate those. I don't think you need to land on any particular side of a continuum to be right. I think you're going to parent in a way that feels the most authentic to you. But I know you're here because you care about this stuff a lot and that you are open to different ideas as long as they make you a better parent. If you'd like to check out more of Dr. Alfie Cohen's work, you can go to his website. It is his name, A-L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N dot org, Alfie dot org. All right. I want to shout out the Unlearning Network. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Alfie Cohn. Thank you to you for hanging out with us today. If you have ADHD, or even if you strongly suspect that you have ADHD, I am scheduling calls. There's no charge for this. I want to learn more about you share some insights that might be helpful to you, and I can fill you in on what else is going on in the Dad Strength universe. You can go to dadstrength.com slash contact. There's a quick form there, and we'll set up a time to talk. All right. Thanks again for hanging out with us today. We'll see you soon. <laughs>